It's good to see everybody today. I appreciate the reading this morning. We've been having this section of Philippians chapter 2 and a lot of lessons here of late. And as I began to look at this uh, in a little bit deeper level than what I typically have looked at these passages, there were some things that came out to me that I want to share with you this morning about Christ and his humility. And the verses that we read are very familiar verses. We often talk about the verses, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. But the connection and the application of that that was meant for the church at Philippi is what I mainly want to focus on today. So we're going to talk about Christ's humility, but we're going to talk about why Paul in this section of this letter referred to Christ's humility. And I, I call this the perfect humility of Christ because as we look at the character of Jesus Christ, we recognize his perfection. We recognize that he was sinless. But when we talk about humility, I want you to think about Christ not sinning in any area of life, even in regard to humility. Because humility is one of the greatest challenges that men have. We see that from the very beginning of time, that the pride of life was one of the things that caused Adam and Eve to fall. We see pride connected to almost every single sin. Humility is a challenge. And I will tell you, this is not going to be an exhaustive lesson on humility. And as I begin to meditate on humility, just humility itself, it's connected to so many things, we just simply can't do an exhaustive lesson on humility. So we'll, we'll take what we talk about today from our reading. I actually want to start in 1 Peter chapter 5, just to think about humility and what humility means. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5 here, Peter says, Ye likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. So there's a couple of ideas here. One of those is that we're to be clothed with humility. What does that mean, clothed with humility? When you wear something, it's visible. It's out there for everybody to see. And when you wear something, it goes everywhere you go. I mean, there's some things to think about, the idea of being clothed with humility. We would maybe use the word adorned or decorated with humility. Our character and the way that we interact should be one of humbleness, of humility. And he tells us God resists those that are proud. He gives grace, favor to those who are humble. So what does humility mean exactly? Humility means humiliation of mind, and we'll talk about that in a moment. It means modesty, lowliness of mind. We'll talk about that in just a moment as well. Humble means depressed. You say, well, that's kind of strange. Okay, don't think of depressed like melancholy. Think of depressed in posture. And if you actually look at the root words for the word humility, there's two words, the word depressed and then the word midriff. So that might sound funny, midriff. So think about this, a depressed midriff. What does that mean? It literally means a bowed down posture. That's humility. Now, it's that, that's the literal definition of humility, depressed posture. But if you apply that, Think about every interaction that you have. Every time that you have a conversation with somebody and being clothed with humility is exhibiting a life of depressed posture. Romans 12, 3. 
For I say through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ and every one members one of another. Humility is a positioning of oneself in attitude and in action, but here's where it starts. It starts with the mind. It starts with the mind. Notice, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. You know, you can have what's called false humility. And there's actually a passage that talks about that in Colossians 2, and we're not going to read that this morning. But false humility, you ever heard somebody that was proud to be humble? They'll tell you how humble they are. I mean, they'll give you all the evidence of why they're so humble. And it, it kind of stands logic on its head because you can't really be proud to be humble and be humble. Humility is about a mindset. It's not about me trying to get you to think that I'm humble or putting on a, a mask of humility, but about actually having a humble heart, about recognizing that I am not great. Do you notice what he says here? Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. How do we view ourselves? And that's the most important question when we think about humility. What do we really think about ourselves? And there's another thing he mentions here that I want to notice. According as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. You say, what does that have to do with humility? A lot. Because I want you to notice this word dealt here. God has dealt he has handed as a gift. There are certain things, certain abilities, certain skills, certain talents that you and I have that have nothing to do with us. Now, that's not to say that the talents and gifts that God have, has given us cannot be honed or refined by hard work, okay? That's not the point. Here's the point, though. There are certain things that we possess that have nothing to do with us and everything to do with the God that gave them. I did not choose to be born in America. I did not choose to be born in Texas. I did not choose the amount of wealth that my parents possessed as I was growing up in the home situation that I was in. I didn't choose that. People don't choose how their parents interact with them often. There's a lot of things. People don't choose their intellect for that matter. And you say, well, you know, people can stop. I'm not talking about education. I'm talking about your ability to look at something and your mind's cognitive ability to discern something. Most of us don't have anything to do with that. And my point is this, to look at other people and look at certain things that have nothing to do with them and judge them because of that and think that I am better than them is because I haven't recognized God is the giver of all good things. And I am nothing. I am nothing. So to our reading, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, and we're going to break some of this down. Paul says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. So these two words that are translated, selfish ambition and conceit. Selfish ambition is exactly what it sounds like. It's when somebody is more concerned about their own agenda and their own ambitions than they are anything else. It's a very self-absorbed type of lifestyle. The word conceit literally means self-esteem. 
And the word self-esteem literally defined means to have a high opinion of one's own self. And I want us to look at that for a moment because he paints us a very good contrast when he says don't do things that are according to your own interest, selfish ambition. And don't esteem yourself greater than others, but in lowliness of mind. That's humility. Lowliness of mind. He says let each esteem others better. That's the heart of humility right there. What's the word esteem mean? It means to deem or to reckon or to consider. So again, it's about the mind and it's about perception. I look at you and what does Paul say we need to do? I need to look at you and not think I'm better than you, but think you are better than me. It's kind of hard to do, isn't it? Look at the next part. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, This is about me looking at you and assessing a value. And I assess to you a greater value than I do for myself. That is humility. So he says, let this mind be in you which is in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he started with the mind. It's about esteeming one another. Let this mind be in you. What kind of mind did Jesus have? What kind of mind of humility, if you will, did Jesus have? And he's going to tell us. Who being in the form of God did not consider. And that word consider is the same Greek word we just read in this verse that was translated esteem. It's the same Greek word. I don't know why they translated it different ways. It means the exact same thing. Jesus did not esteem himself anything different than being equal with God. So let's think about us for a minute. We look in the mirror, we make an estimation, we esteem our level of greatness. What did Jesus see when he looked in the mirror? He saw himself equal as God. But he denied himself of what he knew to be true. He, being in the form of God, did not think it robbery to be equal with God. But you know what he did? He emptied himself. And you say, that's a strange translation of that word. We typically hear the word made himself of no reputation. Well, the word reputation is not in the Greek. It's just, it's a translation of the word. I think it's a, a decent translation. But the literal translation of the Greek word that's used is to make empty. It's often translated vain. Uh, it's, it's also translated in a way that gives the idea of something being completely useless. Jesus emptied himself of what? The honor and glory that he had. He was in the form of God and he emptied himself of that glory to do what? To take upon a different form. The form of a bond servant. And being found, he says, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death. There's an enemy of humility today. It's not just pride. There's a movement that is coming through, an intellectual movement, if you will. It's it's one of those things that, that sweeps through. It's a worldly idea, and it starts trending, and people begin to buy into this. And I'm telling you, God's people are buying into this, and it's very dangerous And it's the doctrine of self-love. And I want to talk about self-love for just a moment. These are actually quotes that I took that are from the self-love movement. And I'm going to read those to you just in case you can't see them in the back. 
This one up in the top left corner says, the more we love ourselves, the more we blossom into the greatest version of ourselves. Self-love is the most important kind of love. Loving yourself will work miracles in your life. Loving yourself isn't vanity, it is sanity. And then this one right in the middle, which is kind of the mantra, first love yourselves, others will come next. I don't want anybody to confuse self-love with self-care. That's not the same thing. You need to take care of yourself. Jesus even taught that. He even taught the disciples that, that when they were just overwhelmed by the crowds and, and didn't have any time, he said, let's go aside into a desert place and rest a while because you don't even have time to eat. And they didn't get a chance to do that. They went into a desert place. They didn't hear the multitude showed up again. But it's not about self-care but it's about self-centeredness. And I sympathize with anybody who looks at this and finds it to be a very attractive thing because the extreme of this is self-hatred and self-deprecation. And that's not at all what the Bible teaches. It never teaches us to loathe ourselves or to deprecate ourselves, to uh, abuse our own self, if you will. So, but the question is, why does it have to be one or the other, either self-love or self-hate? It's, it's not about that. I want us to look at 2 Timothy and look at the biblical idea of self-love for just a moment. 2 Timothy chapter 3, but realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of God. You say, well, why was it necessary to read all those things? I saw where it said lovers of self. I read all those things because I want you to see all those things are painted in a negative and sinful light. None of them are spoken of positively here. And one of those things he talks about is lovers of self. Someone says, Ian, but don't you have to love yourself in order to love your neighbor? Isn't that what Jesus taught? And they read this passage, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So you have to love yourself so you can love your neighbor. Is that really what Jesus was saying? You have to love yourself so you can love your neighbor? No, he's saying you love your neighbor like you already naturally do yourself. Why? Because people are naturally self-centered. People naturally self-love and self-preserve. We're naturally selfish by nature. And Jesus is saying you love yourself, but you need to love your neighbor as much as you do yourself. That's our true challenge is for me to esteem you and love you as much as I do me. Notice what is said about husbands and wives in Ephesians 5 and 28. So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. He's not saying, husbands, learn to love yourselves so you can learn your wife. He's saying, look, you already love yourself. Now you need to love your wife like you do yourself. Why? Because that's a real challenge for men. Why didn't he tell the ladies the same thing as he did the men here? Because they naturally love Better than we do, don't they, fellas? They naturally love better than we do. But no man hates his flesh. I mean, if you get something wrong with your body, what do you do? You try to take care of it. You nourish it. You cherish it. You protect it. Why? Because you love your own body. He's saying love your wife like you do yourself. What we need is to focus more on service. And that's what Jesus did. The world says love yourself, but Jesus' friend said this. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. What's interesting is the greatest service that you can do for yourselves is to serve God and serve others. It's the greatest thing you can do for yourself. 
And that's what Jesus taught us to do was deny self, not love self first, but to love God first, to love our neighbor second, and to love us third. Jesus really illustrates the perfect example of humility in John 13. And I love this story, but I, but I never noticed this verse for some reason that starts out this story. In John chapter 13 and verse 3, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which with he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? I want to stop for a moment, and I want to notice the first verse that leads us into Jesus taking his outer garment off and wrapping a towel around his waist. It says, Jesus knowing that God had done what? He'd given all things into his hand. He knew he had come from God and knew he was going to God. That's interesting, isn't it? Jesus Again, when he was in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But now, he's got up from supper, and he's never done this before. They've never seen this. Jesus gets up from supper, and he takes off his outer garment. They typically wore two garments. And he takes a towel, and he wraps it around his waist, and he begins to go around to his disciples and take this basin of water that he filled and begins to wash their feet with a towel. You ever really think about that? You know, your feet are fine. They're your feet. You can wash them, right? Feet are kind of undesirable to people. But, you know, if you think about us today and the level of hygiene and comfort that we have, most people's feet are really clean, I mean, not only do we have soap and showers, we've got a fresh pair of socks we can wear every day and, you know, clean shoes. So if you took your sock off today and I washed your foot, it probably wouldn't be that unpleasant of an experience. And I'm sorry to be a little bit graphic, but I'm going to be a little bit graphic so you understand where Jesus is at right now. They did not have toilets back then, and they wore sandals. Yeah, and Jesus is on the floor on his knees at the feet of the disciples washing their disgusting feet. This is something that slaves did. This was bondservant work. And Peter is not saying, Lord, are you washing my feet while he's washing his feet to make sure that's what's going on. What he's saying is, are you going to wash my feet? Are you going to wash my feet? And here's what Jesus said. What I'm doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. That's how I know he wasn't washing Peter's feet, because Peter said, you're not going to wash my feet. Now, I've heard Peter described by many people as ready, fire, aim. You get that? I'll say it again. Ready, fire, aim. That was Peter's mouth a lot. But really, his intentions are good here. Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, ready, fire, aim again. Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. 
Jesus said, I've got to do this, Peter, or you are not connected with me. You have no part with me. And he said, well, then just wash all of me. He's still not getting what's going on. And Jesus told him, you don't understand what's going on. Now, how do I know that the lesson in this teaching is not about foot washing? I'll tell you why. Because they knew that he was washing their feet. That wasn't the lesson. They understood that Jesus was washing their feet. He said, you don't understand what's going on, but you will. What was the lesson? Verse 12, so when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? If the message and the teaching is foot washing, that's a silly question. Do you know what I've done? Well, yeah, you washed her feet. Here's, here's the point. You call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. What's that mean, teacher and Lord? Those are terms of honor. You look up to me as your mentor, your teacher. You give obeisance to me. You bow yourself in humility to me as your Lord, and that is right, because I am your Lord, and I am your teacher. I'm above you. If I then, your Lord and teacher, someone who is above you, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I've done to you. What's the teaching here? The teaching is this, nobody is too great to serve another person. Nobody's too great to do the menial tasks. Nobody's too good to get their hands dirty doing something that we would look at as undesirable. Nobody's that great. Jesus exhibited ultimate humility by washing their feet. And the lesson is for us to be humble enough to esteem others better than I do myself and serve one another just like Jesus served them here at this moment, bowed down to the ground. Jesus said this in Matthew 20, 25, but Jesus called them to himself and said, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who are great exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Jesus said the way to greatness is through service. It's not through ruling, it's not through authority, it's not through someone puffing their chest out and saying, look how great I am. He says, if you wanna be great, then serve just, look at verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus deserved to be served. I want you to remember that. Jesus deserved to be served, but he served. We do not deserve to be served, but we want it, don't we? We want it. You know, if you work in a restaurant very long, you'll find a whole lot about human nature. And I'll tell you something that we learned working in the restaurant business. People love to be served. But they only love to be served if it's exactly how they want it. Because you can do a very good job but mess up one tiny little detail and they will bite your head off. And I'll tell you, that whole esteem others better than yourself, that, it, it flies away with the wind. You know what's sad though? You know what the toughest day for us waiting tables at the restaurant was? Sunday lunch when the church crowds came in. They were the rudest, most entitled people that we ever dealt with. And that's sad. 
Because they left church, and I'll tell you what they didn't feel. They didn't feel humbled. They felt better than you. And if that's what we're getting out of this, we walk out those doors so we can feel better than everybody else, we miss the point. We miss the point. Jesus calls us to humility and to esteem others better. Romans chapter 12, 16, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind. That word haughty means arrogant. But associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. One of the things that we have trouble with is not thinking that we're smarter than everybody else. Do not be wise in your own estimation, in your own opinion, in your own viewing or deeming or consideration of yourself. And that causes some problems, and here's why. Look at Proverbs 26 and 12. Do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? That goes right along with our saying here. Do you see a man? What does he mean, do you see a man? He's saying, I want you to look at a person who's wise in their own eyes, and let me tell you about them. There's more hope for a fool than for him. Now, I'm going to use a word here in a moment, and it's going to make some of you uncomfortable. It's going to make some of you uncomfortable, but I'm going to use it because it's in the definition of this word. And then I'm going to show you where another word is translated like this word. This word fool needs to be in our face a little bit more, and I'll tell you why. Because it's the word kassil, which means figuratively stupid. You say, whoa, you said stupid. I know, I said stupid. We, we don't like to use that word because we typically use that as an insult for people. This is not about an insult. The word stupid literally means empty-headed. And I'll tell you why this ought to get in our face a little bit. And, and I'll tell you, that's how it's used every time in Scripture. Seventy times it's used. Sixty-three times it's translated fool and seven times foolish. What's he mean? He said, you see somebody that thinks that they're wise in their own eyes, someone that's got that level of arrogance. He says, there's more hope more chance for success for someone who's stupid than for someone who's arrogant and thinks that they're smart. That's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? That's not the only time that Solomon gives us this idea because a lack of humility leads us to a lack of reverence for God. And you say, well, how's that connected? I'll show you in just a moment. Proverbs 15, 13, the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom and before honor is humility. There's a triangle between these three words that I want to show you here. Humility and fear or reverence. What causes a lack of reverence? Lack of humility. Not recognizing someone's greatness. The idea of reverence is that we look at someone with awe. We look at them and we esteem them great or we honor them uh, sometimes the word veneration is used, which means the highest degree of honor you can give to someone. Think about honoring God. And why do people not honor God? It's a lack of humility. But there's something else that's connected to that. And it's the word instruction, the instruction of wisdom. And that word instruction doesn't mean that I sat down and I wrote something out and I taught you something. It literally means chastisement. We don't like chastisement, do we? But wisdom chastises us in our foolishness. And when we hear that chastisement of wisdom, how do we respond to it? Do we respond with honor toward God and humility? Look at Proverbs 12, verse 11. Oh, this is supposed to be Proverbs 12, verse 1, actually. So if you look that up, it's Proverbs 12, verse 1. Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. I did not translate it that way. That's how it's translated in the New King James, New American Standard, English Standard. The King James uses the word brutish, which literally means stupid. It means empty-headed. 
And here's what he's saying. Someone who hates to be corrected is empty-headed. They're senseless. They have no place of looking and discerning in the world. Why? Because correction is for our good, not for our destruction. And I want you to think about Jesus and his humility and his suffering. Jesus was chastised and he did not deserve it. And the question is, why did he go through it? Because he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Why? Because of his reverence for his father's will. He humbled himself. We may think chastisement is, I'm going to use the word, stupid. But that's not true. When the knowledge and the wisdom of God corrects us, when it reproves us, we should first listen and consider and then look at ourselves through humility because it's wise to be corrected and to change. A lack of humility also leads to a lack of care and concern for others. Going back to Philippians 2, 3 for a moment, he says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Do you see how these things are all married together? That when I esteem you better than me, it moves me to serve. It moves me to look out for your interests. Well, when we don't care about people, when we're apathetic toward people's problems and tribulation, what does that say about us? We've got a lack of humility. You ever heard somebody say, well, I, I can't do that. My time's too valuable. What makes your time more valuable than someone else's? Well, I got an important job or I got an important role or, I, okay. Was Jesus' time valuable? You know, he only had around 30 years on this earth. That's not a whole lot of time to do a lot, even though he was able to impact the world greater than any other person who ever lived. But his time was valuable, was it not? You think about Jesus having Jairus come up to him and say, my daughter is dying. Please come to my house. And Jesus leaves and goes with Jairus. And on the way, this woman that had an issue of blood for several years touches Jesus and he stops and says, who touched me? And they said, don't you see the multitude? You're saying who touched me? He knew who touched him. Can you imagine being Jairus in this situation? And Jesus stops to have this conversation with this woman while your daughter's dying. His time was valuable. But Jesus had it all under control. He, he knew where he was going. He didn't forget about Jairus' daughter. He knew that when he got there, he was going to take care of business. But he stopped. And he gave attention to somebody who no one else would ever give attention to because everybody else looked at her and said, you're not good enough. You're unclean because people lost their care and their concern. Why do you think the Pharisees acted and behaved the way that they did? Jesus pointed out over and over they were prideful people who would devour a widow's house and bind heavy burdens on men but wouldn't so much as try to lift one of those burdens with one of their fingers. You know why? Because they were great in their own eyes. I've used this passage quite a bit lately, so I apologize for that, but it's just such a good passage. And especially in regard to what we're talking about, you think about Paul here saying, I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I'm loved. 
This is the attitude of a man of humility who says, I will empty myself. Just like Christ, I will empty myself. Even if you don't care. Even if you don't appreciate it. Even if you don't love me back. I will empty myself. You know why? Because it's not about me. And it's not about what you give me. It's what I can give you. That's humility. It's not about the return on our investment. We don't serve to be served. We don't serve so someone serves us. That's not what it's about. Jesus said, if you love those who loved you, how are you better than the world? You love somebody because you're Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ loved us so much, he humbled himself to the point of death. And we should humble ourselves and serve no matter whether people love us or not. This is another really fantastic story from the Gospels, which, which is not a story, it's a historical depiction of what happened. Jesus is going to Samaria and around the area of Samaria and Galilee. And if you don't know anything about the Samaritans, the Samaritans were looked at as being lesser people. They were looked at, they were called dogs by the Jews. And as he's passing through, it says he entered a certain village and there met him 10 men who were lepers who stood afar off. And that was not uncommon for the lepers to, to be amongst each other because that's really your only company. You can't be around anybody else but other lepers. So these 10 lepers come and they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. And, and Jesus doesn't heal them immediately. He doesn't say, I will be thou cleansed. You know, he did that at times with lepers. In fact, he touched one of the lepers, which was something everybody would have freaked out about. But he doesn't do that here. He doesn't heal them immediately. It says when, I'm missing a verse there. <clears throat> We're going to move on anyway. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his feet, his face at his feet, giving him thanks, and he was a Samaritan. There's a reason. It's not an accident that Luke said, and he was a Samaritan. So what had happened was these lepers say, have mercy on us. And Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest. And while they were on their way, that's verse 14 that we're missing. While they were on their way, they were cleansed. And one of them turned back. Didn't go to the priests. He turned back. And where'd he go? He went back to Jesus. And so Jesus says this. Look at verse 17. So Jesus answered and said, were there not ten clean? And where are the nine just one turn back you might think well they they were going to the priest it never says they went to the priests never says that it just says they were cleansed this one turned back he didn't make it to the priest he turned back why because he was grateful these people were not grateful you know what happens in life people start to think that they deserve the blessings that they have or they feel entitled to things that people give them and they lose their gratitude. This man turned back and what did he do? Look at what Jesus said. Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God? It wasn't just about being thankful. This man comes back and he falls down at Jesus' feet. He depresses himself before him and he glorifies God for the blessing that he so undeservingly received because he was humble enough to recognize I did not deserve what I've been given. But Jesus said, where are the nine? I'll tell you where the nine were. 
not glorifying God. And if we don't glorify God in our life, I'll tell you a place to start looking is am I humble enough? Because that may be the problem. Luke chapter 15. As we're closing up, I want to think about the story of the prodigal son, but I don't want to talk about the prodigal son, the lost son. I want to talk about the older brother. Sometimes we feel like we're treated unfairly. And this son certainly felt like he was being treated unfairly. His younger brother had went out and wasted all of what the father had given him on riotous living, on sinful things. He had been a total failure, honestly, as a son. And he comes back home, and the older brother doesn't know he's home. And when he gets home, he hears music and dancing. And one of the servants says, your brother's come back and your father's killed the fatted calf and put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet and put the bet, you know, tells him what's going on. And rather than going, my brother's home, he got angry. So he went and talked to the father about it. And he said to the father, lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said, son, you were always with me, and all that I have is yours. You know, there's several problems with this. And one of the things that's, that, that is a problem with this is all he's thinking about is himself. That's all he cares about. And so what does he do? He calls attention to how great he is. Look at what I've done. I didn't leave. I didn't waste your stuff. I've been here the whole time. I've served you. I deserve this. He doesn't. He wouldn't even call him his brother. This your son. Does he have a right to be mad? No. But he thinks he does. And a lot of times that's where we're at. We think we have a right to be mad because somebody snubbed us or we got treated unfairly. This man needed a very large dose of humility. And I'll tell you, it was tied to his gratitude. What did the father say to him? You are always with me. And you own everything I have. Look around. Everything here, it's yours. It's yours. And he felt like he was being treated unfairly, but what really happened is he didn't realize just how blessed he was. I want to end with verse 8 of Philippians 2 again. And I want us to notice he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Rebellion is a big sign of pride. You look back at Moses when God told him, I want you to speak to the rock. And he was like, well, first time I struck the rock. And he says, must we fetch water for you? And he strikes, why did he do that? I'll tell you why. And this is an old good Texas saying, he got too big for his britches. That's what happened. He swelled himself up full of pride. He forgotten God made the water come out of the rock. Moses, you didn't do anything. You hit a rock with a stick. You're nothing. What happened to him? He wasn't allowed to enter the promised land. Why? Because of that moment where he became arrogant and rebellious. 
You know, not long after that, as they're wandering out in the wilderness, in number 16, it's recorded that Korah, which was one of the sons of Kohath, one of the sons of Levi, he was in that lineage of the priest, comes to Moses and Aaron and says, what's so special about y'all? All the men are holy in, in the camp. Why do y'all get to do all this stuff? Moses said, well, I'll tell you what. You go get your guys and come out here with censers tomorrow and, and we'll offer an offering to God and, and we'll just see who's holy. And so it happens and Korah and all these men come out there and God's going to just destroy the whole camp. And Moses and Aaron, they fall down and they pray for him and they say, are you going to destroy all this camp for one person's sin? And God said, tell the people to get away from Korah and get away from all his people. So Korah and them come out there thinking they're about to come have a face-off with Moses to prove a point. And I'll tell you what happened. They came out there and the Lord opened up the earth and he swallowed them up and they all died. And then he caused fire to come out from under the altar and devour all 250 of the priests that were there holding censers. Then you know what happened the next day? Then the people came the next day and they came up to Moses and Aaron and said, this is all your fault. You killed all these people. So you know what God did to them? He caused a plague to fall on them. You know why? Because everybody was so concerned about what they thought was right. And nobody ever stopped to ask, why are Moses and Aaron doing what they're doing? Why are they doing what they're doing? Nobody ever stopped to ask that. Nobody ever stopped to ask, what is God's will? They were just angry because they had lifted themselves up and they were being prideful. Jesus lowered himself into unquestioned, perfect obedience to the will of his Father. Last verse, Matthew 11. We often notice where Jesus talks about the yoke that we carry, that it's light and easy, right? So we'll have rest because the yoke is light and easy. But there's something else he says here. He doesn't just say that his yoke is easy. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It's not just about taking a different yoke, is it? Jesus said, you want rest for your souls? You want to have peace in life? You want to be happy? You need to adopt the mind of Jesus Christ, not a mind that tries to elevate yourself, but a mind that recognizes who we truly are and humbles ourselves toward God and toward one another. Friends, today, God is waiting for you. If you have something wrong in your life, God is near to a contrite heart, a humble heart, to a broken spirit. God appreciates and regards humility, and he blesses those that come to him in humility. So if you need the Lord this morning, we ask that you would come have a seat on the front as we stand and we sing the song that has been selected.